0: We're in Psalm 20 this morning. Hear now the word of our true and living God. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation, and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king, May he answer us when we call. That sends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Please be seated. Let's pray to God for the illumination of his word to us this morning. Lord God, we ask that you would grant us uh, your spirit. That we might have eyes to see and ears to hear what we are to know and to learn from the text before us. That we may be strengthened and encouraged. Lord, help me as I preach that it would be clear and beneficial for everyone in its hearing to the edification of the saints and to the conversion of sinners. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So it is our normal practice here at Grace Covenant Church to uh, work our way through books of the Bible, which we've been doing for the last several months uh, through the book of John. Uh, Today we'll be taking a one-week break uh, from John, however, as Pastor Riley and Diana needed some time to welcome another little one into their home. Uh, Lazarus is going to have to wait one more week uh, for his resurrection, as we're going to spend today in Psalm 20. Now, if you're at all familiar with the Psalms, and if you're a part of GCC, you will be because uh, we read them and sing them regularly, pray through them uh, Sunday mornings. You will know that the writer of half of those Psalms, David was either in trouble or in close proximity of trouble, into trouble for much of his life. Uh, David, being a a warrior king poet, we could say, was uh, almost uh, in constant turmoil. Most of his life was spent in turmoil. Pain of betrayal, threat of violence, grief over his own sin and the effects of others' sin on himself and on the nation of Israel. Trouble was almost constant during David's ascension to the throne and in his reign as king. In Psalm 20, we find David having written a public plea to God in preparation for battle, in preparation for war. This is a convocational prayer in the form of a song, as, we, as indicated by the scribal title, which is addressed to the choir master, the song leader. Uh, historically, it has been understood that Psalm 20 and 21 should be considered together as a pair of royal songs, royal psalms, rather. Psalm 20 being the call to arms. An appeal to God for protection and victory. And then Psalm 21, the victory celebration upon successful return from the battlefield. And so my provisional title for today's message is Cause for Confidence. Cause for Confidence, because I think we're going to see that this is the thrust of David's public prayer in this psalm. Well, first of all, I want to point out that as with many of the psalms, Psalm 20 has been written in a chiastic structure. It's a fancy word. We'll get into it. What this means is that the text is set up in such a way that the author works his way towards a main point and then back from that point, uh, repeating the introductory ideas. And in this song, he contrasts them towards the conclusion of the passage. Uh, This leads the reader to a climactic focal point in the middle of the passage, kind of like a bullseye on an archery target. Just like on an archery target, there are many points to be gained, but the sweetest spot is right in the center. And so it is with Psalm 20. There's a visual on the back of your bulletin if you want to see it mapped out. Now, in chiasms, many times the repetition is word for word. As you can see on that visual, I know it's written very small. That's the best I could do to fit it on there. Um, So yeah, you can see that it's it's word for word in some cases. In other cases, it's more that the general theme is repeated in the text. Either way, as we go through the passage, I think we're going to see that there's a distinct pattern uh, in the way it was written. And personally, I think that it's, the visual is helpful as we can see the design of the passage before us. Um, I find chiasms very interesting because they show us that God has not only inspired the words of Scripture themselves, he's also inspired the flow and the structure of the passages. And so as we go through the text today with the Spirit's help, uh, I pray that we'll be able to follow David's line of thinking as the Spirit inspired, inspired his writing of it so many years ago. So starting with verse 1. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. And then if you notice, uh, the same theme repeated in verses 7 and 9, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And then verse 9, may he answer us when we call. And so here is David in a day of trouble, preparing for battle, likely against human odds, calling out to God and expecting an answer. As we know, this is not the first time David needed to be rescued out of the hands of enemies. We are surely familiar with David's run-ins with the Philistines, and Goliath in particular. We can read in 1 Samuel 19 about Saul's plot to kill David, and how the Lord intervened, saving him through his friend Jonathan. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, we can read an extensive list of David's military exploits for Israel, each time aided in battle by the Lord. David had a history of calling on the Lord and much personal experience of God answering those prayers. Remember, David's expectation of deliverance from God is based on the fact that God had promised him the throne and that David would pass it down willingly to his successor and not have it torn away from him by force. But David's expectation is not based only on his previous deliverances out of trouble by God, not even just on God's promise to him in particular, david is not crying out to god here based merely on god's recent performance or david's own experience notice david calls on the name of the god of jacob may the name of the god of jacob protect you and so what's the significance of that i believe it is this the god who answers the god who protects his people the god who transcends trouble is not a god who has come lately our god and the god of david is also the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, the God of Abraham, and Moses, and Noah. Our God is the covenant-instituting and covenant-keeping eternal God. We worship a God who is, and has always been, and will always be. Just as Jacob was delivered after striving with the Lord, just as the Lord favored Isaac by giving him a son, and just how he blessed Abraham, giving him many descendants, keeping his covenant with him against all human odds, God, for the sake of his name, his reputation, will keep his covenant with David and will answer him in his day of trouble. It is an eternal, unchanging God who is faithful in keeping his promises in whom we can have confidence. And so David, having remembered God's repeated faithful deliverance of his people over the course of time, David moves on to draw attention to God's location. His location, look in verse 2. His help will come from his sanctuary, his support from Zion. And then see again the same point in verse 6, where David says, God will answer from his holy heaven. There are two aspects to these words, sanctuary and Zion. There is the earthly sanctuary, the earthly Mount Zion, where David had installed the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, This is the place where God tabernacled with his people. This is the sacred place where David and faithful kings after him would seek God and pray for His protection. We have such a prayer recorded for us in Second Chronicles, as spoken by King Jehoshaphat, and this is in Second Chronicles 20 if you want to turn there. Second Chronicles twenty verses five to nine. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. David's prayer is like this prayer. David, having likewise been anointed as king by God, was in the practice of seeking God's face he knew where to go for help the sanctuary the safe place where God was known to dwell among his people now we as God's new covenant people likewise have a safe place where God promises to attend to our prayers we're in it right now we're in it right now it may not resemble the temple in Jerusalem but wherever the body of Christ gathers in his name our Lord promises to be present in a unique way which is another reason why we cherish our Lord's Day services so much. But that said, all prayers said in faith, whether in the sanctuary, the prayer closet, around the dinner table, or at bedtime, all prayers said in faith ascend to the throne room of God. As verse 6 reads, the eternal Zion, the perfect sanctuary, they ascend to God's holy heaven. The God who made the earth and everything in it transcends trouble because he transcends the earth. He is over and above his entire creation, ourselves included. He is otherworldly. He is heavenly. Right now our youth are going through a series on the attributes of God and they should all be able to tell you that God's self-existence, his aseity, means that he does not need us nor his creation to exist. He exists outside of his creation. And although our Lord has revealed himself in times past through type and shadow, in reality he does not dwell in a temple made by human hands. Rather, he is enthroned in the heavenly realm where he is surrounded by elders and angels who worship him unceasingly. And David demonstrates again, as we see so often in the Psalms, that he knows from whence his help comes. It comes from the heavenly, holy hill of Zion. Notice here where David doesn't go for help. He doesn't strategize with his advisors in the war room. He doesn't plead his case in the court of human opinion. He is intent on trusting the Lord's means in fighting the Lord's battles. He shows us this contrast in verses 7 and 8, where we can read about the world's military philosophy, and this should be a warning to those who might trust Trust in and seek help apart from that of God alone. David writes, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we, God's people, we trust in the name of the Lord. This is a warning to God's people. And the background for this warning is found in Deuteronomy chapter 17, where God, having rescued Israel out of Egypt, began to give them laws teaching them how to live. And in particular, he gave them laws having to do with how the future kings of Israel were supposed to conduct themselves. And uh, this is from Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 17. You can turn there if you like. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only, and here's the warning, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And so the Lord had strictly forbidden Israel's kings from emulating their neighboring countries. He commanded them not to collect for themselves excessive provisions for war or wealth or wives. Of course, we know that David's life um, demonstrates that he failed to keep these instructions perfectly. But in the case of our psalm, David does recognize the foolishness of enlarging his army, knowing that first of all, unless God brings the victory, the number of military personnel is irrelevant. He also understood that with a large army could come a large ego and misplaced confidence. And David repeats this inspired warning in Psalm 33 where he wrote, the war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. We also have a prophetic warning from Isaiah in chapter 31, verses 1 to 3. What the eventual outcome will be for those who consider themselves to be God's people, but who look for protection apart from him. This is Isaiah's prophecy. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he... The Lord is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. And if you want to study out how that all came to pass in Israel's history, Uh, Generations after David's reign, you can take a look at 2 Kings 24 and 25. There you will find a record of King Zedekiah, whom because of the nation of Israel's disobedience, God placed under submission to the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. But instead of heeding the rebuke of Zedekiah, who was thoroughly wicked, um, instead of repenting and crying out to God for help, um, he tried to gather forces from Egypt And at the end, his attempts failed, and he was unable to defend Jerusalem from the Babylonian siege. The city was overtaken and plundered, and many were killed, and Zedekiah himself came to a terrible end. So the prophecy was fulfilled. But David did not fall into this sin. He took to heart the Lord's instruction and prophecy. He appealed for help, not from men or horses from a neighboring nation, but from God and Spirit from the hill of heaven from where God's all-powerful, outstretched arm reaches down to rescue his people. As always, it is God who condescends to us. He reaches down to us to reveal himself to us, to save us, and to keep us. It is not we who climb up. It is God who reaches down. The God who is transcendent, who is far above us, is also imminent. He is near to us. We have to hold these attributes of of God in balance with one another, the truth of God's transcendence, his aboveness and his imminence, his nearness. If we fail to do so, we will see him either as distant and disconnected or we'll see him as overly familiar and ordinary. And The fact remains that when you're in trouble, someone's help isn't any use if they aren't present, nor is their presence any good if they can't help. But our God is a very present help in times of trouble. Our God is omnipresence. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He is above us, and yet He is near to us. He is able to help us. And now, if we look in verse 3, we're going to see that our God wills to help His people. Verse 3 May He remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. And then, if you look according to the pattern of the song, the beginning of verse 6 Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed, He will answer. If you look at the visual in the bulletin, at first glance it looks as though maybe the pattern, maybe the chiasm breaks down a little bit, but I would say to you that God's anointed in verse 6 and God's obedient in verse 3 are the same group of people. It is only those whom God has chosen and set apart and appointed for his purposes who call upon him in sincerity. It is only those who have been regenerated by the Spirit, anointed as it were, who are obedient by faith to follow his commandments. The Lord, through the prophet Samuel, had anointed David as king, empowering him by the Spirit for the express purpose of ruling Israel in service to God. In the same way, all of true, faithful Israel, though not physically anointed with oil, are spiritually set apart for service to him. God's redeemed people, having received God's favor, exhibit Godward behavior. In David's day, this meant making the required sacrifices by faith, making the burnt offerings for the forgiveness of sins. We need to remember that the old covenant, the old sacrificial system, required the repeated costly and bloody death and sacrifice of bulls and goats and sheep and so on, a never-ending shedding of blood, which was prefiguring another sacrificial shedding of blood that was yet to come. In making these sacrifices, as David did, the nation of Israel were appealing to God by faith, petitioning him for a clean conscience. But David's intercessory prayer for God to remember his and his people's acts of obedience is not not merely an appeal to God to reward good behavior for good behavior's sake. Remember that for God's people, everything we have that is good is from him and to him every good and obedient act is a result of God having done something in us first. It is because God has anointed us with the Holy Spirit that we then respond obediently in accordance with his will. And so this is David asking God to affirm the faith that God gave him, that that faith itself is a gift. And then to affirm and reward the appropriate, obedient demonstrations of that faith. God is gracious to grant his people faith and he is just to require obedience from that faith. And he is then gen- generous, he's benevolent to reward that obedience. How humbling is that? But at the end of, the, end of it all, God is approving of what he himself has done. And so that, that's kind of what David is appealing to here, saying in essence, God, we remember your promises to us. We remember your past faithful dealings with us. Please remember our obedience to you. And because David believes that God does remember obedience done in faith, the confidence of his psalm grows. You can see this in verse 6. You can see the shift in language from the words in verses 4 and 5. May he and may we to the assurance of I know and he will in verse 6. David says, I know that the Lord saves his anointed and he will answer him from his holy heaven. Now, like anyone with true saving faith, David's confidence and assurance was not always at its peak. I'm sure we can understand how, as was the case in David's life, there are times when a person might doubt God, might even question him, question his presence, question his goodness. But, like David, and all those in whom the Spirit dwells, eventually and inevitably, our senses return to us, along with our confidence, that God does hear, and he does know, and he will answer. We arrive with David to the truth that God will save his anointed ones. He has set them apart, placing his redemptive love on them in order to save them. And what God wills to do, he does. God wills to save his people, so he will do it. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And now we build on this confidence. David makes his boldest request yet, verse 4. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. And then following the structure of the text, the end of verse 5, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now, if we're not careful with the language here, we might get the impression that David is asking God for a blank check, saying, God, give me, give us whatever we want. And even for us, for those of us who love God, it is all too easy to focus on the desires of our own hearts to yearn for things that we don't have or situations we wish were different. These things may even be good things in themselves, but in God's sovereign purposes they haven't been granted to us. So contrary to what some popular teachers say, God filling our wish list of all the things we want is not what the scriptures teach, and it is not what David is saying here. Just as an example, um, when when a bookkeeping client gives me a blank signed check, Uh, It always comes with the understanding and expectation that I'm going to use it for its agreed-upon purpose. I'm not at at liberty to spend it on anything I like. Uh, I would break trust and lose clients very quickly if I did that. Um, I must write out that check and use it according to the will and desires of the one who signed it. And in the same way, when we consider the desires of our heart and when we pray for those desires, we must be sure that they are aligned first with God's will. In the psalm, Before us, David is asking the Lord to fulfill the plans that the Lord himself has ordained. That God's will be done on earth as it is in his holy heaven. What David is actually asking for is that he and Israel would have God's desires, that they would share God's desires, and then that God would bring those desires to pass. David's prayer is that God's will would take up residence in his innermost being, and that his will would be done in the lives of his people individually, and in his people collectively. This ought to be the attitude of each one of us, to desire what God wants and then to see it come to fruition. We must always be seeking more and more for our hearts and minds to be conformed to the will of God. Only then is it safe for our plans to be fulfilled. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, we may have our own will when our will is God's will. Brothers and sisters, the last thing we should want is to get our own way in opposition to God. And that's what David's plea is here. May the Lord give us his desires and then grant them according to his counsel. In David's day, God's revealed will was for Israel to be ruled by David for God's glory, and that his name, God's name, would be made great among the nations, so that his kingdom would advance on earth. It is these petitions, these plans that David longed to see fulfilled, even though he only understood in part. And so David, having the confidence in knowing that his desire was then in line with God's will for Israel, he comes to the central point. It's the bullseye of our psalm. It's in verse 5. May we shout for joy over our salvation, and in the name of our God, set up our banners. David's confidence spills over into celebration. And this is celebration before the battle was even fought. Get the flags ready and fly them. Get ready to cheer at our triumphant return because the Lord will answer. He will grant us his help and protection. He will remember his people and secure our victory because it is his plan to do so. Just as God brought victory over Goliath with a single stone, just as he gave David victory over the Philistines and the Moabites and the Edomites and countless other armies, God was sure to bring his people safely through this battle. And God's word bears out that he did deliver his people. We need to only look to Psalm 21, David's victory celebration, to see how it all played out. Listen to Psalm 21, verses 1 to 7, which, incidentally, is another chiasm for those of you who like that sort of thing. This is Psalm 21, verses 1 to 7. O Lord... In your strength, the king rejoices, and in your salvation, how greatly he exults! You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. So God did fulfill his plans for Israel, both in the immediate sense, in David's experience, and ultimately, in bringing salvation to his people, Jew and Gentile alike, through David's descendant, Jesus Christ. And so the chiastic structure of Psalm 20 has led the listener and us to a focal point and our cause for confidence, which is salvation from God alone through our new covenant king. As we study God's attributes, his transcendence, his imminence, his holiness and his justice, his mercy and love, we see that they all culminate at the cross. God's perfect plan for the redemption of his people. The things David saw and exemplified as type and shadow pointed to a saviour yet unseen, but whom we now know is Jesus Christ. Christian, having seen God's salvation plan come to pass, should we not have confidence all the more? Should we not be shouting for joy at our salvation, waving our flags in the name of our great God and saviour? For we have a perfect Davidic king. We have an eternal saviour who answered the call, coming down to us from the Father's right hand, from the very sanctuary of God, his holy heaven. Christ condescended to suffer as a man, to demonstrate his power over sin, and then he ascended again to demonstrate his authority over death and hell. Our Savior is currently seated at God's side, at the throne of grace, interceding for us and working all things for the good of his people. Christ our King, anointed by God and as God, with the full measure of the Holy Spirit, having descended as a dove upon him at his baptism and marking the beginning, beginning of his ministry, identifying him as the Messiah. Jesus is a righteous king who is faithful in his day of trouble, perfect in his temptation, patient in his persecution. He came to do the will of the Father who sent him. Their desires were one; His petitions and plans were fulfilled. Unlike David, Christ never once faltered. He never once sinned in his mission to rescue and redeem God's people. Jesus trusted the Lord completely. He went to the cross in full submission. He chose not to call for outside help, for legions of armies to rescue him, if it meant not being obedient to fulfilling his father's plan. Our Savior provided himself as our sacrifice, his perfect sinless life as our sin offering. He was beaten and bloodied and killed in our place, dying on a cross to satisfy God's righteous wrath. And on the third day, God raised his anointed, rescuing him and bringing him back from death, having fully accepted Christ's sacrifice made on our behalf. And God always remembers and regards with favor what Christ has done. And those united to him by faith now share in that favor. Has Christ not also sent us the Holy Spirit? The transcendent Spirit of God become imminent, living inside of us, setting us apart for his purposes, his plans guiding us and comforting us and leading us into all truth? The Spirit now works to align our wills with God's, changing our desires into those of our Lord. The Holy Spirit is a a seal of the promise that Christ will return victorious to take us, his bride, to Zion with him at the end of the age. Is this not our desire? Brothers and sisters, in spite of the fact that the world is waving their flags in denial of God, In rebellion to God, we should have every confidence. Just as in David's day, there will always be those who trust in their own resources to save them. There will always be those who set themselves against God and gather forces in opposition to his will. They might appear strong, but in the end they will collapse and fall if they persist in fighting against the God who made them. Our desire and prayer is that if there are any here today who think they would prevail against God and his anointed king, Jesus Christ, that they would turn and repent and believe in the one and only Savior of the world. If you haven't done this, know that you have already lost the battle. Apart from faith in Christ and his righteousness imputed to you, you will not stand before a just and holy God. For the same king who made his triumphal entry into this world in a humble manger and into Jerusalem on a lowly donkey will return again, but this time he'll return on a war horse with the armies of heaven behind him, and anyone not with him will fall and will not rise again. But brothers and sisters, for those of us who are being saved, let us rise and stand upright. Let us proclaim our salvation with joy. Let us set up our banners with confidence in the victory that is already ours, in the name of the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ.